0: Today is October 28th, 2010, and my guest is John Quiggin of the University of Queensland. He blogs at Crooked Timber, and his latest book is Zombie Economics, How Dead Ideas Still Walk Among Us. John, welcome to Econ Talk. Good to be here. And I should say it's uh, – I think it's October 29th where you are. Is that correct? It is October 29th. It's um – 8 o'clock in the
1: morning, it's a glorious day.
0: And it's 6 p.m. here in Virginia, and nice and – it's also – it's been a glorious day. Now, your book, Zombie Economics, is an indictment of a set of ideas from economics that you argue are either destructive or simply wrong. And yet, like zombies, they keep coming back. They're hard to kill. So I want to start – we'll see how many we can get to today. Uh, I want to start with your first one, which is The Great Moderation. So talk about the idea. What was the idea behind The Great Moderation, and why do you think it's, uh, it's dead?
1: Well, so the Great Moderation was a label given to the period starting, I guess, in the mid-1980s and going through the mild recessions in the US in uh, around 1990 and after dot-com bubble and bust. Uh, And looking back at that period, if you took the right sorts of measures of volatility, the economy looked a lot less volatile uh, than it had been in the past. And so uh, the claim was that This wasn't just a lucky draw from the data. This was the product of the kind of um, deregulated financial system and the approach to monetary policy based on um, uh, adjusting interest rates in line with the Taylor Rule that had been adopted at this time. So uh, the view was that uh, the economy was on a permanently more stable footing. And in some sense, uh, that kind of claim isn't new, of course. It was made... um, uh, in the 1920s when we first discovered monetary policy in some sense and more strongly again in the 1950s and 1960s when Keynesian fiscal policy seemed to be able to stabilise the economy. So that idea, I think, um, encouraged the view that uh, we shouldn't worry about uh, development in asset markets and things like that. We, looking at the real economy, it seemed to be uh, more stable even though asset markets were obviously more unstable. And so that... Um, encourage the kind of benign attitude uh, to financial imbalances that uh, led us into the current crisis.
0: And it is – the idea that this time is different is does have a timeless appeal. We really, I think, want to believe that. Um, now, John Taylor, who we've had on the program before, and we'll put a link up to his discussion of the Taylor rule, he argues that the reason we – the great moderation ended is that we simply followed bad monetary policy that we could have sustained it, that that the recessions of 91 and 2001, as you mentioned, were relatively uh, mild by historical standards, and that this last bust, this terrible uh, mess we're in right now, was the result of uh, of a failure to follow the policies that led to the Great Moderation. What's your response to that?
1: I guess I don't see it that way. I see the, um, uh, the dot-com bubble and bust pretty much as a rehearsal for the kind of, um, the kind of bubble and bust we had in uh, 2007 and 2008. And in a sense, uh, the the willingness, I I would see it primarily as bad prudential policy, the willingness of uh, Greenspan in particular to uh, bail out financial institutions and encourage them to believe that they will be bailed out while not restricting their uh, financial innovation. I think that was really evident in uh, 2000, evident in the lead-up to and following the dot-com bubble and bust and uh, and it was that uh, huge growth in the financial sector, backed up by this so-called Greenspan put, that uh, really is, is the problem here.
0: So the it could well. I'm confused by that answer. Um, that's why I'm stumbling. You're suggesting then you seem to be agree. I mean, that's Taylor's criticism. Taylor's criticism is that. Is that Greenspan's interest rate policies in the aftermath of the dot com bubble put the the financial um, the Greenspan put the willingness of Greenspan to ease the losses? Are you are you as critical as John Taylor is of Greenspan's monetary policy?
1: I guess I'm distinguishing. I think I think the difficulty in this in this uh, in the framing of these questions uh, and the way in which we thought about things like asset price bubbles is. If you only have the one instrument of interest rates, you have to use it both to manage the real economy and to um, and to work out and to to look at its influence on the financial sector. And and the problem was that although, of course, the dot com uh, recession was relatively mild, the recovery was also very weak. So, uh, in terms of fiscal policy, there was a case for uh, a case for relatively stimulatory policy, but uh, we had the problem that this was building up. Uh, failures in financial markets, and so my conclusion is we need measures directly to regulate financial markets, uh, given that we end up bailing them out, and that, that we need to focus on that rather than trying to use interest rates for all purposes.
0: So let's talk about that issue of deregulation or re-regulation, which is, I think, one of the central issues that uh, the developed economies have to struggle with right now. You you make the the, the argument that uh, there was a certain – it's another zombie idea of sorts uh, in your book, market liberalism generally, the idea that sometimes it's called the Washington Consensus, that free markets are the right way to create prosperity and growth and to develop. and uh, You're critical of that idea and would replace some of the uh, policies of the 80s and 90s with a, with a stronger regulatory environment. Make make the case for that and talk about why uh, it's necessary.
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. And I, I suppose I'd focus particularly on on the financial sector because it was a really um, well different regulation but effectively deregulation of the financial sector that was the really characteristic feature of the of the post seventies period of of market liberalism. So there was um, there were various other things in, in product markets, but the real the really striking difference between the market liberal period post the 1970s and the previous period was this huge growth in the financial sector and a belief that regulation had to be light-handed so that we didn't discourage financial innovation. So uh, my view is that's uh, almost entirely wrong-headed thinking because uh, the financial sector ultimately will and must get bailed out as we saw in in 2008. Um, We can't allow the financial system to collapse and that in turn means that The majority of financial innovation, uh, unless it's tightly controlled, is going to be arbitrage against those regulations. So if we have a situation where when the financial system uh, fails, everybody gets bailed out, uh, the incentive for all financial sector actors is to take risks which will uh, fail precisely in that event. So everybody effectively wants to bet on that that event happening. Uh, The only way to stop that is by regulating the range of activities that protected banks can undertake.
0: So here's the irony. Um, you and I are on relatively uh, opposite poles of the regulatory spectrum, and yet I totally agree with a half to two-thirds of that story. So let's see where we disagree and try to sure. think about how we would uh, try to either come to some sort of agreement or adjudicate the dispute. Uh, you you suggest, as, and this is the part I totally agree with, that the – Once you have in place the idea that a bailout is likely or inevitable, which has been the case in the United States and in other parts of the world. In the United States, uh, it goes back to at least 1984 with the bailout of continental Mm -hmm. Illinois and proceeds, as we've talked about here on the program before, through a whole set of events where the signature nature of these bailouts are the bailout of creditors, um, the people who who, who in a market system should be uh, monitoring uh, performance and uh, prudence and risk-taking. And yet if they know they're going to be bailed out, they um, they don't behave correctly. So the fundamental question is why wouldn't you simply be in favor of no bailouts? Other, and the way, other way I would say it is we've never tried market liberalism. Uh, so why do you think we should go in the different direction?
1: Sure. Well, I think – I mean I'll take those – Two one too. And I, I think if we go back to September two thousand eight, of course the, the precipitating event was the attempt of um, uh, the attempt of the Federal Reserve to finally summon up some spine and say, you know, we never guaranteed Lehman Brothers. They're not. They're not an institution that's part of our remit. We're going to let them go under. Uh, and the discovery within a matter of days that letting Lehman go under would take the entire, at least the entire Wall Street uh, investment banking sector with them. Uh, Via AIG, which of course its primary creditor was Goldman Sachs, uh, we would have taken the whole system down. And looking at the, the lock up of, um, of then of things like uh, money markets and so forth, uh, the, extent of, uh, the extent of the shock, I think, uh, was such that, in my view, the alternative to a bailout was even worse than the bailout itself, uh, bad as bad as its consequences have been in many respects. So I think. Uh, the idea that um, uh, the idea that we can simply let things, uh, let things fail to some extent of course was tried in the, uh, um, you know, in the depression and, and in the 19th century, so i don 't think it 's fair to say entirely that we haven 't tried these things, of course we 've never had a, a pure system of market liberalism, but equally, of course, my um, remaining communist friends tell me we, we never had pure communism
0: uh, <laughs> and, and no doubt both are correct.
1: <laughs> they are, but I, I think at some point you have to say, "Well, this is as close as we're likely to get," and the contradictions only—the you know, contradictions only get worse. A so bail out the kind of attempt to say, "Look, we're really not going to bail you out, or we're not going to prompt, we're not going to make, make it clear who will be and who won't be bailed out," um, which has been characteristic of, of the relatively liberal policy of the of the nineteen seventies period since the nineteen seventies, I think, always ends up failing.
0: Well, you know, it's an interesting issue because the it may have been true. I think it's very difficult to figure out. Well, there's no way to figure it out, but it's hard to provide evidence on either side. But it may have been true that, that Lehman Brothers was the precipitating event and had the government continued to let people fail, let firms fail, it would have been catastrophic. It's hard to know. But certainly that was the result of past mistakes and it, regime um, – change is hard to, to impose. It's hard to say, well, from now on, we really mean it. And maybe firms would act more um, responsibly. But let's take your point as correct, that given the past decisions that have been made, it's impossible to make a credible uh, promise that you'll let firms fail. What What's to be done? Uh, given well, giv- be, Given the central yeah. role of financial markets in a modern economy and in – the business cycle that at least we're in right now, the downturn. What is to be done?
1: I suppose looking at the long run story, I'm I, I'm a fan of of a version of narrow banking. That's a term that gets used in lots of different ways. But talk about what that what you mean by that? Well, essentially a reimposition of something like Glass Steagall. That is a separation between banks that take deposits uh, take deposits and and from the from the, from the general public and make loans uh, and investment banking and a a cast-iron guarantee of the banks in the first category uh, combined with the the most credible promise you can make not to rescue banks in the second category. And I think the only way you can make that second promise credible is to say that uh, you can have no significant financial dealings across that boundary. So we can't have joint ownership, we can't have large-scale extension of credit um, uh, and securitisation crossing the boundary between a regulated and guaranteed banking sector and an investment banking sector. That I think is the is the way in which we can um, uh, in which we can potentially uh, achieve that kind of credible guarantee. Which you know, one point to make is we do in a sense have that kind of guarantee with respect to the stock market. That is, if you lose your money in the stock market, you're more or less guaranteed the government isn't going to come in and say, "Well, that's terrible. We'll bail you out." So I th- and even though the stock market is very big in the economy. So I think it's not so much too big to fail as too interconnected to fail as the problem. That The problem isn't that uh, Goldman Sachs say as an institution is so big that its failure would uh, be a disaster. It's that it's connected to everybody and everything else.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it's always uh, worth remembering that the 2001 recession, which was preceded by a sharp drop in the value of uh, technology stocks – had a very mild effect, and the people who had invested in those stocks lost their lost their money. Uh, a lot of them did. Some of them made a lot of money, but a lot of them lost money, and they didn't expect to be bailed out. So the real problem, I think, as you point out, is it's the interconnectedness, and then the ability to use leverage to finance to, to use borrowed money to finance your um, your risky bets.
1: That's right, and I think that's, always, that, that's then connected to this issue of financial innovation. As long as you have a, a, a permissive attitude to financial innovation, that is you say, well, people can introduce whatever new financial instruments they like, uh, and it's only if we find something wrong with them that will stop them. In a situation where you've got a government acting as guarantor for part of that system, uh, the incentive is always to find new ways of, of getting more leverage, uh, taking more risk, because some part of the losing bets can always be laid off on the public.
0: So let's talk about this narrow banking idea, which a number of people have come out in favor of it. Um, some dispute the claim that that the repeal of Glass-Steagall was central. But let's the fundamental simple again. Forget the challenge of implementation for the moment, which of course it would be a little more difficult, perhaps than it, it, would than it sounds. But but the but fundamental idea of saying, well, if the government's going to guarantee something, it should probably guarantee the deposits of the individual investor who's putting a very large part of their nest egg perhaps into this bank but certainly the professional investor who's being a speculative investor and taking risk uh, they get the upside so it's only fair that they get the downside as well and so what would stop again forgetting the detail the challenge of the detail what do you think since that seems like such an appealing idea what do you think stopping it
1: well i think the crucial problem yeah the crucial problem the reason for example that we bailed out, or the US bailed out long-term capital management, which you know, which was regulated on exactly that premise. The
0: of,
1: and, and precisely the deregulate that these were deregulated uh, firms because the story was well, this is professional investors. You know, it's limited to wealthy people investing their own money. Yep. We don't have to watch what they're doing. But what they allowed was long-term capital management to borrow from institutions that had been guaranteed.
0: Yeah,
1: and so. So these people weren't gambling with their own money; they were gambling with, in effect, the deposits of uh, the deposits of you and I. Yeah, uh, and it's that connection that I think uh, is crucial. And of course, I mean, the repeal of Glass-Steagall in '99 was was just you know, making official something that had been you know, in practice uh, in place for for quite a few decades before that. So I yeah. certainly don't want to sort of uh, point to that legislative act as as the crucial point. It's more that we move from a system governed by the spirit of Grass steagall to one of of, uh, integrated uh, full-range banking where, where the whole system was interconnected. So my
0: suggestion, and I'll let you react to this, my suggestion is that it's the political power of Wall Street that really would be the major impediment to this kind of regulation. I'm sure they could make some kind of argument about it's important that I don't know. it's Different parts of the, their institutions can talk to each other. You know, there is a claim made that that it's more efficient, and but it seems kind of a stretch, um, especially given this guarantee part of it. So it seems to me that that the reason we're not going to move in that direction is that Wall Street likes living off of you and me, and um, that we ought to be uh, fighting that.
1: Uh, well, I entirely agree. I think it's uh, we, we've seen how little, yeah, you know, how. A very modest regulation that went through um, you know, was, was vigorously resisted and watered down as far as it could be, and I think, um, and very clearly, um, the, the assumption is, uh, you know, very clearly, we saw, yeah, um, yeah, the resentment of of Australians even having bonuses cut, even when they were taking government money, yeah, um, and uh, and especially, I mean, the sort of the people who'd been bailed out indirectly, the Goldman Sachs, again, who'd, who'd been bailed out by the rescue of AIG, uh, taking the view that, well, you know, this, that wasn't our problem and we, should, we shouldn't have to have any obligations in return whatsoever. So, yeah, they are very powerful, I guess. what well, they have lost, and, and I, th- I think um, you know, the, the efficient markets chapter in my book is, is hammering this, is, is they've lost, lost, to some extent, the ideological power that goes with the belief of these are the guys who are always, always right. That the financial markets taken collectively are always right, and therefore that we, we mustn't do anything to interfere with them doing their job.
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting. Let's turn to that. Let's talk about efficient markets a little bit because I was trained at the University of Chicago, and a lot of Chicago ideas and Chicago economists are, are some of the zombie peddlers in your book. <laughs> and the irony is, and, and this is just, it's fascinating to me, is, uh, uh, you know, as we think about these issues, which are, they're challenging empirically, but. The, the challenge is I'm sympathetic to those Chicago ideas. Still, uh, they are still they are zombie-like. They they they're still alive in my brain, and as you point out, a few other defend people still defend them. And the reason I defend them is that I look at as you say, it's true. There's an ideological view that says markets are always right, and financial markets always price things correctly, et cetera. But if you press, I think. Eugene Fama and others who put forward these ideas, they'd say, but of course we didn't mean for that to be the case if government was going to bail out losers, and I think your what, what's compelling about your argument, the part I accept, is that, okay, well, what do we do now? We're in a world where government does do that. How should that affect our perception of financial markets?
1: Um, I, mm, I agree, and I think part of the problem is even if individual losers aren't bailed out, when you have a situation, yeah, I think... It's impossible for governments, in some sense, to take a neutral stance in response to something like a stock market crash. Something has to happen, and um, uh, well, yeah, well, whether yeah, it's almost impossible to identify what what it would mean for governments not to respond to it, because tax revenues fall, unemployment rises and so forth. And so, so I think we are in this world where um, yeah, the hot yeah, and yeah, where when the whole market gets way out of whack. The, the kind of reasoning that leads the efficient market hypothesis, I think, doesn't stand up very well, whereas you know, Samuelson and, and I and others, I guess, would say most of the time, if, if the market says that GM is worth more than Ford, it's probably right.
0: Right, and you and you make that point in your book, and why don't you elaborate on that, that it, at an individual stock level, you might – there's a certain – I'm interrupting this this question. I mean yeah. there's a, there's a certain parallelism in your book. You're also critical of of theories of macroeconomics that look for micro foundations or over overemphasize them, and yeah. you can argue that the efficient markets hypothesis is sort of a similar phenomenon. You have the idea that you know if I look at the value of a particular stock, the current price is probably your best bet, but you might struggle to make the case then that the entire market's uh, processing all information correctly, and similarly, individual decisions could be rational or at least somewhat sensible. But you can have problems at the macro level at, at uh, despite that is that a yeah, fair that's summary
1: very, that's very much my view and obviously it's something that we haven't really um, uh, we haven't really got um, got a handle on I mean, i'm'm very interested in the sort of limits of of rationality and things like um, things like bounded awareness and things like that and I suppose i'm interested in the sense of Less interested in the obvious sort of gross violations of of perfect rationality that we see like hyperbolic discounting and so forth and more interested in the point that even if we're highly sophisticated people we can't possibly encompass all possibilities and therefore we have to have situations where speaking collective, thinking collectively we think about a bunch of possibilities and necessarily ignore some others if something forcibly brings those other possibilities to our attention, we can have, a, I think, a very sudden shift in the so-called animal spirits of the market, uh, a shift potentially from one kind of macroeconomic equilibrium to another. Those are ideas that have sort of been around for a, a while and um, never fully worked out in the kind of nice, rigorous way that, um, uh, that we like to publish in the journals, but I think they are important.
0: Yeah, no, that nice, rigorous thing is often a... It's an important constraint, uh, for better or for worse. It's it's a real constraint for academic research, and at least in the modern era, uh, like you, I'm sympathetic to some many ideas that are not necessarily rigorous in the mathematical way, but still we can learn something from them. Let's let's go to the efficient. Let's stick with the efficient markets hypothesis sure. for a minute. Um, a lot of people argue you would be one of them that that the. The bubble that that popped in in two thousand and seven or eight in the housing market, for example, or in the financial market using housing as a as an asset, totally eliminates the possibility that the official markets hypothesis should be taken seriously at the at the overall level for the market as a whole. And yet, people have defended it. Um, they've argued that it wasn't clear, you know, whether it was really a bubble or when the bubble would pop. That that information isn't widely understood. The question I want to ask is. What do you do about that? Let, let's say, again, I accept your view, and I'm agnostic on this. I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the efficient market's view, so it's a little bit of a zombie idea for me. I'm still hanging on to it a bit. But let's say I agree with you that, that a lot of times markets get out of control. What do we do about it?
1: The first point I make, I guess, it seems to me in many ways the dot-com bubble was a, a clearer test case than the housing bubble. The I mean, housing is a complicated kind of asset, um, with the dot com bubble, you had situations where, according to the kind of valuations that were prevailing, there was a for a period there was a, a fad about B two B business to business things were supposed to be the the thing when it was obvious that dot com retailing wasn't the pot of gold. And it was alleged, plausibly, that at that time the, the procurement division of GM was worth more than GM itself. Yeah,
0: some strange things were there.
1: And so, so I suppose I would say that. Yeah, I, if I really want to point to something, I, yeah, I would say yeah. That was a situation where all of the sand excuses could be put to the test and, and failed. Uh, you know, there were people who tried to bet against it, and the, 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 the last outlasted them. The, you know, the we're talking about assets that clearly, yeah, clearly couldn't be defended. Although, of course, people have have I think post tried to defend defend that story. Becoming the question of what we do about them, I, I think. You know, I suppose going right back to when I was you know, first learning economics. Um, which was you know, right at the end of the Keynesian era, the view then inherited from the Depression was the financial markets are, are, are really important and a vital part of the economy, but like fire, they're a good servant and a dangerous master. You really just need to take an attitude, in particular in relation to financial innovation, to say, you know, if you want to innovate, come along, explain how this innovation is going to work, explain, you know, demonstrate that it isn't, uh, going to uh, going to undermine the effectiveness of existing regulations or if it is that you can find regulatory improvements that will counter that, uh, trying to keep the size of the financial sector in proportion to, to its uh, a sensible role in the economy. And, and I don't believe that a financial sector accounting for 40 or 50% of corporate profits can possibly be of the right size.
0: Now The, the challenge, though, is you know, what regulatory environment would help that happen you know you talk about you'd have to show that your innovations productive it's sort of like an FDA food and drug administration here in the United States approves you know pharmaceutical devices yeah. you have to prove efficacy or lack of side effects it's not too dangerous it's an interesting idea i, I think in practice it'd be very difficult to do we're, we're sort of in the middle of of a of an example of that which is the securitization market which i view as a poison, <laughs> uh, as a toxic, and yet so many mainstream commentators across the political spectrum, left and right, argue that, well, we just have to recreate it because it's so valuable. And my view is, where's the evidence that it was so valuable? It certainly was valuable for Wall Street. Where's the evidence I? that it channeled productive funds into productive uses? I, I don't see it.
1: No, I agree. I, I think it's it seems – I mean people are used to it and um... – uh, but yeah you know, the evidence is that um the evidence i think is that lots of stuff you know, lots of stuff that was going on um you know, unperceived in things like the mortgage market uh in the old style uh you know, is suppressed when you go to, go to this kind of securitisation. and I think there are i think you know, we we haven 't really seen uh, you know, we 've seen you know, some adverse effects of of things like um credit default swaps but i i guess uh, the thing I think that uh, we dodged, in a sense, we didn't see much of. But there were little bits of this kind of thing. Is uh, if you're a large actor and you're betting on some o- other large actor to fail, which is what a credit default swap is, it can't be beyond the bounds p- of possibility that you could act in, in the market in a way to improve the chance of that bet happening.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: and moral um, hazard writ, writ large. Uh, and yeah, if, if yeah, I mean, I mean, it is like insurance where I get to bet that your house will burn down.
0: Yeah, and worry about me sneaking around with with yeah. with some with kerosene at night or whatever gasoline. Yeah, I think insurance. it. I think it's a fascinating. Uh, again, I think it fascinates me that that even though uh, I disagree with with things in your book, again, fundamentally, uh, the the part I accept that is, I think those of us who are market oriented have to. Have to deal with is, we did say things like, well, securitization, it's innovative, it 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 added a lot of funds to the housing market, and we often, those of us who were defenders of markets, often said, and that's good because it's in the market, and it and it, that's was uh, if the market produced it, it has value, and we neglected the fact that uh, part of the reason it emerged so successfully is because of a guarantee. Either a literal guarantee in the case of Fannie and Freddie or a semi-literal guarantee in the case of long-term capital management and other other institutions. I think the challenge where we disagree fundamentally is is the the implementation of something other than hands-off. It's extremely difficult to specify how a regulatory regime would work that would avoid the problems of public choice and special interest manipulation underlie the problem already – and um, again, for me, it's I'm drawn to trying to get people to get out of the bailout mode, rather than try to say, "Let's create a regulatory regime that would work." But I'm
1: no, I mean, I agree with the difficulty. I, I suspect that yeah, that the right kind of narrow banking proposal could produce some common ground. That yeah, I, I would sort of say, well, again, not so much to press financial innovation, and say, well, look, if you want to, if you want to undertake financial innovation. Just don't come near <laughs> our banks and ask for, for their money to, to finance you. Do it on your own nickel. Do, 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 it, do it on <laughs> your own nickel, and and know, uh, yeah, with and yeah, with indeed explicit government guarantees that you won't be, you won't be bailed out. Make sure that every investor in this enterprise has received a letter saying yeah, from the secretary of the treasury, you'll never see a penny from us. But, and we can only do that though if 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 we have a very yeah very clear dividing wall between the institutions that are guaranteed and those that aren't. And of course in good times the ones on the far side of the wall are going to be making money and the ones on the protected side of the wall are going to be complaining and saying we really need to get into this we're losing deposits and so forth. And that I think is the kind of dynamic well it's certainly, certainly part of the dynamic that, um, that brought down those kind of I'm using Glass-Steagall as a symbol but pour down those kind of barriers is when things are going well, of course.
0: Everybody yeah, gets confident. We, we don't have to worry about it. It's good. Everything's fine anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It is an interesting point that you made earlier that we don't expect those kind of bailouts in the other parts of the economy, uh, although recently in the auto industry here in the United States, we've, uh, we've done some of that. But as you point out, when you go back to the dot-com bubble, the idea that somebody who invested in a disastrously, disastrously failed dot-com would come to the government with their handout and say, we've got to keep it going – uh, would be laughed at, fortunately, and that's what makes that sector vibrant. Uh, and, um, I don't know, the financial sector, I think, is the central challenge going forward.
1: For it I think, it, and, I suppose that, uh, I, and again, I mean, this is certainly getting to points where we certainly will disagree. I think the whole, um, my view is that the mixed economy is here to stay, that governments are going to play a significant role in the economy. Uh, the challenge, from my perspective, is is to try and stop the temptation to just poke government into things where it doesn't belong. Yeah. Uh, even it, 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 From my perspective, even having the, the more expansive a view you have of what government should be doing, the more important it is for them not to overload themselves with things which they can safely leave to the market.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's obviously the challenge. I want to turn to some different types of issues in a little bit, but I want to stick with what we've been talking about for a few more minutes. You have a, a very... Um, Lengthy and ambitious discussion of how the economics profession over the last thirty or forty years has looked at business cycle theory, and you go through uh, a whole bunch of different uh, one could call them fads if you were yeah. uh, dismissive, but um, different oh theories, we'll say yeah. uh, of macroeconomics and and recessions and. I want to I want to get you to try to summarize that rather than going through the individual examples you go through. Where do you think we stand today, given the you know whether you're on the left or the right, whether you believe in the great moderation or not? It's pretty clear that the economics profession was taken by surprise by the current mess. Uh, Obviously, there are individuals who claim to have foreseen it, and some had some hints, and some. So maybe they were a broken clock. A lot of people were predicting catastrophe for a long time. Uh, you know, a broken clock that's right twice yeah, a twice day.
1: That. But no, I mean I sort of had some points about yeah about imbalances and things that I think yeah were more less celebratory than the the general thing. But, but I but don't talk think anybody about where, really got the exact mode right. That's yeah, sure.
0: So talk about where we stand because my view. Well, you get oh, you give your view first. Go yeah, for well, it. I think
1: I think we so we we yeah I mean. In theoretical terms, it's an, you know, no doubt an edifice of beauty. We had you know, we had the challenge, you know, we had these old-style Keynesian models, which you know, had some big aggregates in there and seemed to work reasonably well until the, the sort of stagflation period. And the argument was, well, the, re, you know, the argument was the kind of Lucas critique that said, well, you know, these kind of reduced-form relationships will only work as long as the structure is the same. if you want a proper understanding, you have to go to fully-specified micro-foundations. And the first versions of that gave very strongly classical conclusions that really really, the business cycles were impossible unless governments brought them about and so forth. And you had the, the you know, Keynesians responding to that challenge by building, again, you know, more sophisticated versions of these models which allowed for allowed for uh, some kind of business cycle-like phenomena and which seemed, I think, okay. To go okay during the Great Moderation. They seem to produce the kind of stuff you expect to see in the Great Moderation. And we left, and you know, I have a quote in my book more it's explicitly bracketing this, Lucas. We left things like the Great Depression and said, well, look, this doesn't give us any story at all about the Great Depression, but we'll come back to that later. And so, so we don't, you know, we really have these models that I think in their nature are stuck with real, you know, they start at general equilibrium and they can't really go very far from general equilibrium in their nature. And so we're in this position where probably it's always difficult to predict um uh, to predict crises, but certainly I think people who you know, which is you know, includes people both on the left and the right who who took a more traditional view and said, "Well look whenever any of the big aggregates get way out of whack with the historical values, something bad's going to happen. I would say that's at the level that anybody predicted the crisis uh, that kind of less formal reasoning i think. Is probably you know, we have to have to admit that well we really can't model things with the kind of precision that these theoretical models suggest. We have to start going back to a, a more pragmatic approach of looking at these imbalances, trying to keep things a lot of indicators roughly on track. And then I think you know, I suppose the, the other question yeah the big big question right at the moment is, supposing things do fall in a heap and they certainly will from time to time, what should we do about it?
0: But the fundamental question of what caused the Great Depression, or what caused this particular crisis that we're in? Obviously, you'd like to be able to predict it in advance. Let's put that to the side as a sure. too demanding a task. Indeed, yeah. Which, which I, I think it is. But you know, there are people who believe we'll, we will figure it out someday.
1: But even well, if we figure it out, we can prevent it. So,
0: that's the so theory. Yeah. yeah, But ex post, even what's tr- stressing is that even ex post. After the fact, as we look back on it, we can't agree as economists on on these issues. And that, to me, suggests a, a great deal of pessimism about advances. Uh, I talked to Robert Skidelsky for a, a different project in Keynes's biography. He said economics isn't a progressive science. And by he meant it doesn't make progress. You know, yeah. we don't really – Add to our understanding and knowledge. Are you that pessimistic? Do you think that's a fair I'm criticism? Quite,
1: I'm not quite that pessimistic, but certainly I mean, I, make, I use precisely that criticism of progressiveness in the, in the framework we've had for the last 30 years. I think it, it is inherently non progressive because, in essence, we really keep on doing the same thing. I, I quote the sort of Blanchard Haiku metaphor of uh, a very rigorous form in which we start with a general equilibrium. Add one or maybe two twists to it and derive some interesting phenomena. But every new paper starts with, it, it, the next paper we write doesn't take that and add more things. It goes back to general equilibrium and starts from there and adds add something else. Two
0: different things,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and so we keep on essentially writing the same pa- uh, paper, which yeah, this is the pessimistic take on Bancho. He's sort of at writing in two thousand and seven or so. Thought well, this isn't so bad. But so I think I think the first point is that yeah, there's a, a non-progressiveness in the kind of approach we're using at present. That's inherent in just the difficulty of, of of meeting the demands for rigor that are are there. The other problem is, of course, that yeah, I mean, is we have had these cycles. I mean, really, sort of roughly speaking, four of them. You know, we believed in. Um, Believed in the old classical economy that always returned to full employment, and until the depression and Keynes. You know, then we believed in. Um, uh, you know, then you know, in the in the period in which I learned economics, you know, the other view was: yeah, economics obviously is progressive. Back in the nineteenth century, we believed these silly things. Now we're all Keynesians, and we understand how the economy works. And then, of course, we went back to a more sophisticated, but still essentially similar view of the um, of uh, of, um, of the classicals, or, or to a sort of compromise between classical and Keynesian. I guess yeah, you know, there, there was probably a, a bit of an advance there. I think you know, looking at the current crisis badly, though, I think governments handled it in some ways is still better than what happened during the Great Depression. I guess so. You could sort of say that the kind of well, yeah, you know, the kind of neoclassical Keynesian synthesis that emerged you know, was some sort of progress. You know, but, but clearly, there's you know, at best, you would have to say three steps forward and two steps back.
0: Yeah, you know, you think of this famous Bernanke quote where he apologizes to Milton Friedman and says, we'll never make that mistake again that we made back in the Great Depression and let the money supply collapse. And it was sort of a way of saying, it was a, really a punctuation mark about the great moderation, saying, well, now that we, under- we, we learned about that, we won't make that mistake again. And yet, you know the best spin i think you can put on on the story you just told is that well yeah if we hadn't done all those bailouts unemployment would have gone to 20 or 25% or 15 or something horrific and as bad as it is now it would have been a lot worse of course it's really hard to know that's the problem it's not it's not, not, no, it's not clear we look. didn't make it it's not clear we didn't make a different kind of mistake this time
1: I mean, you can look at the countries that, for one reason or another, couldn't do a bailout—yeah, you know, Iceland and Ireland—or either couldn't do it, or couldn't, or having done the bailout, couldn't do any fiscal stimulus uh, because they're already out of money—and and, yeah, those countries definitely have done particularly badly. So, I guess I, I yeah, at that level, I think the sort of, um, uh, yeah, at that level, I think the evidence that, um, particularly, I mean, as opposed to bailouts, which were sort of. Uh, an episode more or less specific to this crisis. I think the evidence that fiscal stimulus has worked is is pretty uh, pretty strong. At least, I mean, I know everybody doesn't agree, but uh, it seems to me reasonably convincing. I think the big difficulty that I fear, you know, the big question, which in a sense is left over from uh, the depression and the China and the Japanese era, is uh, can we. Get a once off stimulus that will push us back onto the right path, or do we need to keep on having more and more fiscal stimulus, running more and more debt? And of course, um, in some political sense, uh, the panic about debt has meant we only, you know, everywhere we've only had one round of stimulus. So, unless, you know, and we have to hope that that was enough.
0: Yeah, one listener, uh, reader of mine, Paul Sebastian, sent me an email uh with your an article that you wrote summarizing your book, uh I think it was in foreign policy. We'll put a link yeah. up we'll put a link up to that. But he he was uh perhaps tongue in cheek. He was surprised that, that Keynesianism wasn't one of your zombie ideas. Obviously you're more sympathetic to the Keynesian model. Um I would challenge that in in, in with your remark about the stimulus, right? It, it's hard to know whether this recent round of stimulus made any difference. It's um how would we yeah. possibly se- – so you and I disagree on this. How would we settle this dispute?
1: Well, I guess, I mean, you, know, there, you can you – know, there are, of course, two ways in which economists can settle a dispute. One is you know, econometrics, which doesn't settle anything very much, and the other is you know, the power of the critical episode. I suppose coming from Australia, it's sort of um, – it's um, you know, we had plenty of warning of the crisis, had a big stimulus, and had to almost uh, – almost no recession. So I think it's, it's very... Um, uh, Australians, at least, are, are, are you know, not uniformly but certainly pretty generally convinced that um, uh, that you know, fiscal stimulus worked uh, worked here to um, uh, prevent the advent of the crisis. And even the people who say it didn't really say, well, it was the Chinese fiscal stimulus and its impact on demand that saved us. So, so there's a pretty widespread view here that these... These instances are pretty striking cases. Yeah, coming back, there wasn't, yeah. of course, precisely because of this back-and-forth idea, yeah. Uh, you know, the zombie metaphor is one that can be wielded by both sides. We're both, in some sense, defending ideas which we've previously pronounced, which our opponents have previously announced, uh, are dead. Uh,
0: tell us a little bit about Australia, what happened there, and actually give us, a, if you can, uh, a little background on the pre-crisis state of the economy. What was the yeah. nature of the housing market in Australia? Did you go well, through the situation that we've gone through in the United States? And then tell me a little bit more in detail, if, you, if you're if you ready, uh, about the nature of the fiscal stimulus that, that was large.
1: Sure. So the first I mean, the housing market is striking because Australia still has... I mean, and, and one of the reasons because we haven't had a crisis is our housing prices are still exceptionally high, I would say. And, um, um, yeah, so I would certainly... You know, broadly speaking, characterised as a bubble, but um, but it has lasted a very long time and didn't uh, collapse during um, during during the crisis. And I mean, there are a bunch of, of reasons for that. But um, so we didn't have that impact. Um, and in general, uh, the economy is has been um, remarkably strong um, in the most recent five years or so because of export demand from China for uh, minerals and things like that. But um, uh so we had we we started in a pretty strong position um and um uh the uh we had in fact uh you know, going to the first bit of the crisis we we didn't have an explicit guarantee of bank deposits and um, um after some momentary hesitation, the government came in with a, a complete guarantee of bank deposits we'd previously sort of relied on this sort of nod and a wink. Uh, Thing that your money is safe, and that that obviously wasn't going to last. So the first step they took was was to guarantee bank deposits, and also uh, guarantee our banks' borrowings from overseas. They charged something for that, so it wasn't a totally it wasn't totally a bailout. But uh, so that sort of kept uh, the sort of direct financial impact from really uh, striking home here. Uh, so the concern we had, I guess, was uh, things like. Um, Export demand and also the impact of, of loss, Australian losses on investment, and so we had, um, I guess, in uh, Christmas of, of '08, there was a, a pretty much a straightforward cash handout. Just everybody got not a huge amount of money, but it was um, it was um, I think about one percent of GDP. So, so something similar to the modest stimulus that Bush had. Yeah. Um, Earlier Around that time, well, time, yeah. and then there was a much bigger stimulus that came in in February of, of 2009. And while has been yeah, some of the projects they spent money on have done well, and some some pretty badly. Uh, certainly, the effect was that um, uh, the construction sector, which yeah, had been um, seeming light all over, uh, remained strong, and, and um, we ended up only having one one quarter of negative growth. Uh, yeah, so there was a quarter of negative growth immediately after the stimulus, but once the stimulus kicked in, uh, we had another quarter of zero or growth, and then a pretty rapid recovery.
0: How high did unemployment get at its peak so far? Uh, it
1: just peaked, It peaked just about six percent.
0: So it never got very high.
1: No, it had been. It's now at five point one. So it, it it never never really took off. Um, yeah, and I mean that was better better than the predictions even with a stimulus but uh, so we had um, we never had high unemployment um, and we're now back to where we were before the crisis
0: yeah i wonder there there is some opportunity for you know obviously for a natural experiment there of certain countries followed certain policies others didn't it's hard to distinguish as you say between external issues you know, chinese demand the nature of your banking system maybe is going to be part of the story other than the um than that deposit issue, are there any other features of the Australian banking system that are very different from the American one, say?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's much more concentrated. Um, so we have four big banks that really run the show. And um, in the wake of the crisis, uh, we had some sort of rather. Um, uh, we had the. Yeah, there had been a lot of pressure to liberalize. You know, Liberalised mergers among those banks, so we have what's called the four pillars policy, which is a pretty silly name, but essentially it means that the major banks aren't allowed to merge with each other. And the view that was you know, that had been the subject of a fair bit of criticism and, and push for reform, but the view in the uh, wake of the crisis was, well, actually, the fact that our banks were a pretty cosy oligopoly turned out well because it meant that um, it meant that they didn't have to uh, uh, push as hard for High risk profits as banks elsewhere, and so they didn't. Um, we weren't nearly as exposed to to these kinds of assets as, as you know, many of the European banks were, for example. And so now we're looking at this question. On the one hand, you know, the you know, moves to reform the oligopoly by market process or by just letting them merge among each other and encouraging foreign entry are pretty much. Off the political agenda because they're seen as, as having too much risk associated with them. But on the other hand, um, all the obvious problems of having an oligopolistic banking sector are still there, and, and that that issue is, is very hot right here at the moment. Um, uh, with some a very odd coalition of people saying we really need to uh, look at at uh, some kind of some kind of reform of the financial sector uh, that would. Um, uh, deal with consequences of this oligopoly and and the government's position being, no, look, everything is perfectly fine and we should leave it as it is.
0: It is strange that... I mean, I'm not persuaded by the argument that if you're an oligopoly and you can make a little extra money, then you won't be tempted to really make a killing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that they didn't invest in these global assets that destroyed so many other banks around the world.
1: Do you think that's really the reason? Well, I think there were two points that were made. One is that they... I mean... I, I take your point that there's no particular reason it's more perhaps that they they weren't under the short term pressure to you know take over there's a big difference between being the acquirer and being the target and um, and you know even even if your strategy isn't profit maximising in the long run you may want to sort of go after those high risk things in order that you know, you're the one who emerges as the as the buyer rather than the the target so, so I could defend that sort of story a little bit the other point, which is really paradoxical, is Australia is a, a deficit country, and and so one of the reasons we didn't invest very much overseas is because our primary business is borrowing, not not uh, not lending. Because um, although yeah, of course our net borrowing position covers a gross where there's a fair bit of overseas investment, but certainly uh, Australia's gross overseas investment isn't that great, and so that was another reason we weren't so exposed.
0: Mm. Uh, let's turn to the last part of the book uh, where you deal with uh, trickle down economics, which is, as you point out, many times the names for these phenomena are, are given by their enemies, not by their friends. Hmm. Um, what do you see as the central distributional issues in modern economies? And, and what role do you think um, ideology like supply side and others play in, in helping or hurting that?
1: Well, clearly we've seen um, we've seen yeah, a, a huge increase in, in concentration of income and wealth at the top of the income distribution in the U.S. Similar trends in most of the English-speaking countries, and, and then more muted trends elsewhere. And so, so I suppose I draw a couple of conclusions from that. One is I think that you know, ideology really does matter. That, that you know, it it's hard to believe that yeah you know, that this this reflects. Um, just differences, differences in the underlying forces. It really does seem as if uh, both both the sort of subtle details of political institutions, as well, of course, as the gross details like, like the form of the tax system, and also just the um, the kinds of attitudes of, of of people as to what uh, what's reasonable and what what can be expected. That these things seem to play a role. Um, so we have seen this big. Um, uh, this big increase in wealth, and you know, I've, you know, I, I suppose, been more and more convinced by the argument that uh, it really is concentrated not only in, fact the top 10% of the income distribution, but you know, in the top 1% or even even smaller uh, groups have, have gained a huge amount of this uh, increment in wealth. And then the question is, well, is that, you know, is it, what, what, are there positive externalities flowing to everybody else, uh, and I would say, you know, the evidence really is not you know, that you know, we 've now got a pretty you know, good natural experiment over the thirty years or so of market liberalism. We can more or less say you know, we're going to you know, for lots of people you know, the clock has stopped at this point, and we 're going to have to rest get you know, what what we do in the next thirty years will be be very different, and we really don 't see the kind of improvements uh, in in welfare for people outside say so the top certainly outside the top twenty percent of the income distribution. Uh, people have done a lot worse in those thirty years than they did in the uh, post in the Keynesian thirty years from say forty five to seventy
0: five Let me push back against that because i don't i don 't accept that and i I disagree with the empirical evidence for it so for example, when you look at static pictures of the, t- the various deciles you have a picture in your book of this that you know the top ten percent the bottom ten the different deciles or quartiles or quintiles a lot of them are are done that way it leads to the impression that That, as you say, people aren't getting ahead and all the gains are going to the top. But if you look at panel data, it's not true. Those pictures are misleading. In fact, if you look at panel data, people actually at the bottom do much better at the end of the 10, 20, and 30-year periods. And a lot of what appears to be stagnation in the bottom and all the gains going to the top are statistical artifacts from an enormous increase, say, in the divorce rate starting in the 70s that changed the – household the way that households were uh constructed and and therefore when you went to measure what happened to households, you got a very distorted view. There's enormous changes in the United States in immigration. So you have a lot of people coming in at the bottom. But again, if you follow the same people, they they don't stagnate. I'm not going to suggest that the gains at the top are part of the gains that go to the to the bottom, but I think the picture that there's a lack of social mobility in the United States and and I think probably elsewhere as well is is um is very unclear
1: do you agree well um, i mean i think that you have to make i mean first yeah, you you always get a different picture from panel data to to cross section i mean I was being told that back in the seventies I,
0: I should just mention when i say panel data this is where you follow the the, the, the literally the same people yeah. over time rather than looking at slices yeah. of cross sections at at different points in time
1: right so 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 there's always i mean obviously for example the life cycle effect but um uh, that um, you know, people's incomes tend, tend to rise from youth to middle age and so forth, and so um, so you, get, you always get a different picture from um, from looking at panel data to um, uh, looking at, at looking at the cross section picture. Um, and I mean, and, you know, there are qualifications you need. To, you know, certainly, household data has the problem that you know, household structures have changed and, and things like that. But um, that was true also in the earlier period. You know, so uh, and. I suppose one of the striking things is that there's very little evidence to suggest that, that um, uh, social mobility, you know, on the whole, the evidence suggests social mobility is declining, not increasing. Uh, certainly, the view, as I mentioned in you know, in the book, you know, a lot of you know, doing national comparisons, I mean, a lot of Americans tend to think, well, we have this inequality, but but we are you know, a society of great social mobility, and that simply isn't true. You know, we can do the studies looking at exactly the same people, and we discover that somebody born in the bottom quintile in the U.S. is much more likely to end up there than somebody born in other countries. And that partly just reflects the fact that the distance between those groups is yes. so great. Well said.
0: Uh, and, and, of course, you might stay in the bottom quintile, but the bottom quintile is rising. And so the question, again, there's an issue of relative inequality versus absolute you know, standard of living. That would be another issue. But uh, right mobility, if everybody's doing better, there's not much mobility because you're still in the bottom quintile or the second quintile or wherever you are, but your life could be
1: better. Well, it's true, but I mean, again, we don't see, you know, and we don't see on the standard measures, and even after you adjust things like household size, don't see much improvement happening in the top, in the bottom quintile. I mean, you can look at something, you know, and I'll come to some qualifications in this. Look at the poverty line. The U.S. has an absolute poverty line. Uh, in essence, it's it's fixed on a consumption basket, you know, that right. was set back in 1962, yep. and the proportion of people below that poverty line hasn't changed very much. Yeah, it was falling pretty dramatically. Yeah, it fell pretty dramatically from the 50s to sometime the 70s. It hasn't fallen very much uh, since then. Now, after you do things like adjustments for for quality and so forth, you can get some action there. But yeah, as you point out, the, the reason, price,
0: yeah as you point out in the book, the price index sometimes is flawed. Yeah,
1: but. Yeah, if you look if you look at the recent past, so the last decade, yeah, most of those things have now been put into the calculation. So the the CPI is is pretty well hedonically adjusted. Most of the kind of corrections you might like to make have been made, and yet there are a higher proportion of Americans below that absolute poverty line now than there were in two thousand.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical of that, but it's that's way beyond the scope of this conversation. And sure. I, I'll just tell our listeners that it's an issue that I want to come back to. I think the uh, there's been some interesting work recently on on price indices, and you know it, it's one of the challenges of, of of the current price index. The way the CPI is is constructed in the United States, is it has a very difficult time dealing with housing, and it's uh it's a big. It's going to be interesting to see how that within the profession though, and in the government bureaus that try to measure this, how they deal with it. Well, let let me ask you one other thing. Is we're almost out of time. Let's put aside our. Or disagreement about, say, the bottom parts of the income distribution and whether there's mobility or not. And let's look at the top. I want to. I think we can find a place where we agree, sure. which is we both agree that the top one percent or ten percent's done very well. I think we both agree that that there are parts of that improvement that weren't very well earned and had no social productivity, such as the financial sector. But surely there are parts that have been um, productive for everybody. I often think of Google. Sergey Brin became a you know a billionaire, and that's good. Most of us benefit from Google and so on. So, do you think we understand much about that income distribution change? Do you think we understand the standard explanations of what we ought to standard solutions to these issues of you know different tax structure? It seems to me most there's a lot of invariance of the income distribution to a lot of changes in the tax structure. What might we do to make things better? Um, that, that's a good
1: question. I mean, I think I think um, yeah, there's an element, of, uh, an element of, we, we don't really understand. And in fact, if you look at the look at the literature, most of it, yeah, when we tried when we were looking at this hard in the eighties and nineties, I guess the dominant official answer, in some sense, was it's technology. But what they really meant wasn't we've gone out and identified technological factors that um, that um, have produced this increase in inequality. What they meant was we've looked at imports and we've looked at this and we've looked at that and, and none of them seem to work very well as explanations <laughs> yeah. and we've got a residual and we call the residual technology, so yeah. that's what it is. So that's one point. A point I guess I'd make is, yeah. I mean, obviously Google is a great thing and has, has done lots of things and has made search been rich, uh, but yeah, the, there's a the correlation between what people put into things like the internet and what people got out uh, is is very very low. Yeah, I mean, the people actually built the internet really uh, were the universities. We you know, we we built sure first part. Uh, of you know, you know, stuff to chat about, stuff of interest to us, and and uh, of course the universities got almost nothing out of it. I mean, in some and and it wasn't. I mean, you know, contra a central planning point of view, wasn't because. Yeah, somebody had a brilliant idea and said the university should have worked on this. Yeah. <laughs> it was. We had a bit of slack in the system uh, and we could do it and we didn't have to worry about getting paid. And so, so the internet beat out all, all of its commercial rivals, you know, the old AOLs and Delphys and things like that. So I suppose one, you know, my feeling in a sense is if we recognise that you know, there really is a big element of luck and that the correlation between your social utility and what you put in uh, is, you know, can actually be quite small, well, that might push us back in the direction of saying you know, that um, that really uh, you know, we shouldn't be encouraging and welcoming these huge disparities in wealth, you know, most of which, you know, I mean, in some cases, you know, good guys get the money and that's good, but a lot of the time it's you know, people who have, as you say, undertaken uh, financial manoeuvres of little social value.
0: Although you know, we, what we haven't talked about, and I think it often gets forgotten in the current, a mess is that venture capitalists uh, which is a market that emerges in when there's great individual wealth you get individuals uh, putting bets down on emerging uh, new new companies that that market really is a high upside very bad downside market and it works pretty well it doesn't work well in the sense that there's still a lot of failures mm. but, but it's, it's right, sure, it's what yeah. you'd expect the world's up really hard to predict, so you know one answer to our financial sector is to encourage a little more of that and a little less of the other kind i guess
1: hmm. well certainly i mean that's that's i suppose part of the story is that the end yeah you know, it's hard to see that um you know, that um uh, you know, that the incredible degree of abstraction with you know securitization derivatives and so forth is really adding the kind of value that you get from simply you know, betting on a um uh, betting on a good proposal, that, that you know, if we we're putting more more effort into into that, that we could potentially get better outcomes out of the financial sector.
0: So we're we're out of time. Let's close. I'll give you a chance to say something about going forward. Overall, um, you want to see a larger role for government than I do, and do and you think – how would you – as you said earlier, you've got to worry about getting to the wrong things –
1: yeah. Give us some guidelines think, well,
0: think, give us some guidelines for a government ought to go the role of government in the in the next in the next century yeah.
1: well, I think the first thing which I think you know i mean people on the left of politics have learned to a large extent we see this with things like climate change is you know, we need we we need to understand uh the power of markets and the strength of markets and, and welcome that and so sort of not you know i having said there's a role for government, I think you know, that role isn't to. Be second guessing market decisions all the time, and it, it's it's as far as possible to uh, uh, to employ market processes where they can be. Uh, so that's that's I think uh, reflects the fact that you know the kind of you know, just the the kind of model where you you push all the way in one direction or all the way in the other I think is, is a big mistake. And uh, and so in that sense, yeah, this kind of balance requires that um, we understand the strength of markets, but I think we also, after 30 years of in which we've largely tried to explain away the category of market failure, we have to recognise that that does happen and that uh, that there are things which governments are going to do better and that having a large government sector in there is likely to produce a more stable outcome than uh, the kind of minimal state idea that was seen, I think, as the ultimate goal of a lot of the changes of the 70s and 80s.
0: My guest today has been John Quiggin. John, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.